Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a talk from C.R. Wiley called Traditional Fatherhood and Orientation from the Trad Dad Conference 2023. Watch this and the rest of the Trad Dad Conference now available on Canon Plus. So when I named this conference the Traditional Fatherhood Intensive, I expected some pushback on the word traditional. For many people, the word is synonymous with obsolete ways of thinking and acting, or with thoughtless conformity. You remember uh, Fiddler on the Roof, right? There's a whole song about tradition, and in that song he can't tell you why they do anything. <laughs> Just they do stuff, you know, and that's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a heartwarming musical, but it's also kind of a, a lampoon of traditional ways of thinking and acting. But this assumes two things we should question. The first has to do with the word obsolete. Is everything subject to obsolescence? Everything? Aren't certain things perennially true? Take the word father itself. Won't we always have fathers? Or will we industrialize procreation someday, turning reproduction into a factory-like process like we see in Aldous Huxley's dystopian novel, Brave New World? Or consider the second objection, that traditions are thoughtless. Perhaps in some cases they're not. Perhaps sometimes wisdom is embedded in tradition. If you don't see any wisdom in a tradition, perhaps it's because you've assumed the worst and haven't thought about it. Maybe the tradition isn't stupid. Maybe you are. Chesterton put it this way. In the matter of reforming things, this is G.K. Chesterton, as distinct from deforming them, there is one plain and simple principle, a principle which will probably be called a paradox. There exists in such a case a certain institution or law, let us say for the sake of simplicity, a fence or a gate erected across a road. The more modern type of reformer goes gaily up to it and says, I don't see the use of this. Let us clear it away. To which the more intelligent type of reformer will do well to answer, if you do not see the use of it, I certainly won't let you clear it away. Go away and think. Then, when you can come back and tell me that you do see the use of it, I may allow you to destroy it. Tradition. The word I mean, it means to hand down from the Latin tradere. A tradition then is something handed down from people who lived before us. An example is the English language. Something that retains its value, even though it's been handed down to us over hundreds and thousands of years. We still use it every day. A tradition, a tradition is the essence of conservatism. Have you thought about that? After all, what is conservatism if it doesn't conserve anything? Traditional fatherhood, then, is wisdom. Wisdom handed down to us in a set of customs and way of doing things or ways of doing things. And that wisdom, for the purpose of this conference, has been summarized in a set of categories, purpose, provision, and protection. Traditionally, 
Fatherhood was understood to be God's idea, something he invented, not our idea at all. And because it is created by God, fatherhood is real. It's not something that exists just in our heads or as a culturally relative social construct, as people who don't believe in God like to say. Obviously, or at least it's obvious to anyone with sense, it's real biologically, as in only men can be fathers. But fatherhood is real in other ways, too. It has real social and religious meanings. Those meanings are moral in character, which means that they are duties that come with the package called fatherhood. These aren't privileges, as detractors like to say, nor are they chosen, as they are sometimes said to be. These are obligations. That means a father should shoulder his responsibility whether he likes them or not, finds them rewarding or not, or convenient or not. The duties that accompany fatherhood are a vocation, a calling. And like any calling, you must discipline yourself so that you can fulfill it. In creation, we find ourselves surrounded by many wonderful things. It's a vast, beautiful world that we find ourselves in, and this world tells us something about our Creator. But within it, there are things that serve as special windows into His character. And one of the most important is fatherhood. The Lord didn't command us to pray to a generic parent in heaven. He told us to pray to our Father in heaven. Some people think that Jesus was merely catering to a benighted patriarchal culture to make a point about the benevolence of God. And since times change, we should come up with new analogies. But this way of seeing the matter is terribly modern. The older view is this, creation speaks, and what it says isn't relative to culture. Instead, it is the basis of culture any culture, anywhere, anytime. One place that we can see this clear, clearly is in the wordplay the Apostle Paul employs in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. You've probably heard the phrase, something was lost in translation. That's definitely the case here. The entire point is lost because the wordplay that serves the point is only clear if you know Greek. Here it is, the Greek word for father is pater, and the Greek word for family is patria. Can you hear the similarity? That's because the Greek word for family is based on the Greek word for father. In other words, you can't say family in Greek without saying Father. And Paul informs us that this isn't a coincidence or just an anomaly that is only seen in Greek. This is reality. Every family in heaven and on earth is named for the Heavenly Father. The contemporary view, as we see with everyone from Feuerbach to Freud, holds that we project our notions of fatherhood up into the sky. But the biblical notion we see here is just the opposite. Instead, God projects fatherhood into the world. And this is the basis for a father's authority, as well as its limitation. Our authority comes from God. 
but it also is subject to his oversight. In other words, we're stewards. We're not God. Another source of paternal authority is the fact that children issue from a conjugal union. As crude as it might sound, implicit in parental authority is the relationship between a maker and what he makes. That's an abstract way of putting it, but it is, isn't difficult to find practical examples of what I mean. A novelist is an author, and he's the authority when it comes to what he's written. If you want to know what he was thinking when he wrote something, you'll need to ask him. By the way, we have another remarkable set of words to consider here. The words author and authority have the same Latin root, actor, which means origin or originator. Obviously, fathers are only partly responsible for bringing children into the world. Naturally, children have mothers, but even the combined efforts of fathers and mothers don't fully explain it. Ultimately, it is the power of God that brings children into the world. Here's David on the subject from Psalm 139. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately you uh, woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when yet there was none of them. The traditional outlook didn't see fathers and mothers as interchangeable. There wasn't some generic category called parents. There were fathers and there were mothers. One way you see the difference is the association in traditional cultures uh, of motherhood with the earth and fatherhood with heaven, as in Mother Earth or Mother Nature or even Mother Church or Mother Kirk, contrasted with our Father in heaven. Mothers are the soil, as David implied. Fathers sow the seed. But that's just the beginning. Not only do children form within their mothers, small children naturally depend on them in ways, in many ways, and it's uh, in ways that are beautiful and uh, irreplaceable. Motherhood is one of the great consolations women can enjoy as women. But this natural nearness is precisely the thing that distinguishes a mother's work from a father's. This biological reality is a meaningful analog to a spiritual reality. In other words, it's not merely a matter of choice or arbitrary social circumstances. And the natural distance of fathers from their children is one of the reasons why fathers more naturally are like the Heavenly Father, who transcends creation. Everyone talks about having an orientation these days, especially something called sexual orientation. But the only point of reference these people seem to have is their passions. And passions can kill you if you don't watch out. Traditionally, fathers had several points of reference to orient themselves because we're situated in a big picture. We can triangulate, like we see with geopositioning systems, and locate ourselves on the map of reality. The big picture I'm thinking of goes by the Greek word cosmos. That word has lost some of its meaning in English. In English Bibles, it's usually translated with the word world. 
This is unfortunate because world hardly does it justice. For instance, world doesn't convey a sense of legitimate authority. But the Greek word cosmos uh, most certainly did. Likewise, even the English transliteration of the word, cosmos, simply means outer space, as in the void that is just beyond the Earth's atmosphere. Originally, though, cosmos in Greek meant order, as in the largest order of them all. Properly understood, creation is an order, not merely a physical order, but a moral one as well. And this order was instituted by God, as we see in creation in Genesis 1 and 2. Ironically, in the New Testament, the mess that's been made of it also goes by the name cosmos. It is, a kind of or, uh, it is also a kind of order, but a bad one. So the word cosmos is used in two ways in the New Testament. First, to refer to God's good order, and then also to the mess that's been made of it. In the first case, when we're told, God so loved the world, in John 3.16, it's the order that God made that is being referred to. But when we're told in 1 John 2.15 that we must not love the world, Scripture is referring to the mess that's been made of it. In both instances, the word cosmos is used. We see disorder increasing in our time. That's the way of the world. Evil waxes and wanes. We see it today quite dramatically with the disorder called transgenderism. But disorder has been plaguing us from the start. We can see disorder in things like fathers neglecting or abusing their children. Those things are worldly in the same way or in the same sense transgenderism is. The way a father knows he's found his place in the order of things is when he comes to see himself as a middleman. He's not the final authority. He's not the true creator or the purpose that things serve. He's somewhere in the middle. Allow me to explain. When it comes to finding your place, there are three directions that help you get your orientation. The directions are backwards, upwards, and forwards. Backwards, upwards, and forwards. Backwards. You might have assumed that the first direction would be upwards. That's understandable but mistaken. People who begin by looking upwards actually end up looking inwards for their orientation. When they do that, they usually are like into like crystals and New Age stuff. In other words, they're likely to mistake their desires and their perceived needs for the interests of heaven. We should begin with looking backwards because we're not the beginning of the story. We're somewhere in the middle of it. And from those who have lived before us, we have received our patrimony. And we are expected to pass it on to our children. Patrimony, that's another word. It's old-fashioned, and we should recover it. You hardly hear it anymore. Instead, when we think of what's been handed down to us, we think of an inheritance. That's a fine word, but it's somewhat generic. That's why people prefer it today. Patrimony, on the other hand, refers to uh, what we've received specifically from our fathers. For example, we received our form of government from the founding fathers. And going much further back, we received our faith from Father Abraham. Honoring fathers was once considered the very essence of piety. 
Piety meant honoring all your benefactors, beginning with your father and mother, but it included honoring city fathers and above all, of course, honoring God. But because we've turned away from the past, we're now locked in ourselves and in the present moment. Failure to honor your benefactories is the essence of impiety. In Inferno, Dante conveyed the monstrous nature of impiety and God's condemnation of it by putting the worst traitors he knew in the, into the mouth of Satan in the lowest circle of hell. And those traitors were Judas, Brutus, and Cassius. There were three mouths in Satan's head in Inferno. Christians honor their benefactors, and this includes our father Abraham, whose name originally was Abram for exalted father, and was later changed to Abraham for father of many nations, which is intended to say something about our debt to him. As I said earlier, our patrimony from Abraham is his faith. I'd like to spend the rest of my talk on what we've received from him. He believed. But what did he believe? He believed the Lord and his promises to him. And the Lord sealed those promises with a covenant. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we're told about the promise that got things rolling. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. As I said, God sealed this promise with a covenant. So what's a covenant? It's like a contract, but instead of being signed with ink, it's signed in blood. Here's the account of the Lord's covenant with Abraham. Uh, and I'll explain in a moment some of the mysterious imagery that you see present in the covenant ceremony. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you were able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. And he counted to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, 
a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Now, this is something that is very odd to you and me, but in the world that Abram lived, it was something that happened all the time. Covenants were cut. And when a covenant was cut, usually there was a, a, you know, a promise that was made, and each party had obligations in the, uh, the covenant ceremony. And what it provided for was an alliance of interest between the parties who entered into the covenant. When the animals were cut in half, there's obviously blood on the ground. The two men who represented their respective houses would make their promises in the presence of many witnesses, and then they would walk between the halves, getting blood on the soles of their feet, on the hems of their robes, and all the witnesses would know that if, the, if either one of the parties failed to, to keep his side of the agreement, the other had the right to kill him. This is serious stuff. This is a wide open world without state troopers, centralized you know, government, social security, none of that stuff. This is like raw. That's the world that Abram knew. We might be going back there, you know, <laughs> but that event with God making an Abram, a covenant with Abram uh, has that sort of as the background for our interpretation of what occurs. But what's interesting about this particular covenant is a unilateral covenant. The symbols of God's holiness pass between the halves. It's a, it's a, it's a promise that's made without qualification. That's remarkable. Made an impression. The covenant was renewed each generation by the spilling of blood and circumcision. Notice the member that's cut. God promised things, and each generation promised in return to serve him in faith. What does this have to do with us? Everything. Because we are Abraham's heirs. His promises are ours. Allow me to explain in a little more detail through a string of, of causes. First, the Apostle Paul tells us that all the promises are yes in Christ. Every promise made to Abraham is yes to those who believe in Christ. That's because Christ spilled his blood to make those promises ours. And because we believe in Christ, like Abraham believed the Lord, we are declared righteous. And because we believe in Christ, we share in his inheritance. That's our patrimony. This is what's been handed down to us from Father Abraham through Christ our Lord. 
Now I'd like to think about upwards. I've looked at backwards, now let's look at upwards. So now because we have received the promises made to Father Abraham, we look up to heaven in the same way he did. I think you can see where this leads. Again, we're middlemen. We represent the covenant in our households, teaching it, exemplifying it, and passing it on. Most of all through prayer and in the manner in which we love our wives, and I'll get to that in a minute. But this is all qualified because we're just because we're middlemen doesn't mean God only works through us. Our children should learn to pray for themselves and not rely on us to do all the praying for them. The only mediator between God and man is Christ Jesus. But this doesn't mean that we don't have a role to play. We teach, we provide, we protect, just like our Heavenly Father does. And when we're faithful in these things, we make it easier for our wives and children to believe God's promises. Fortunately, God doesn't rely exclusively on us. There's a role for the church to play, of course, in the lives of our wives and children, and obviously there's an irreplaceable role that mothers play. But even so, our role is remarkably significant, more significant than most people know. Robbie Lowe, an Anglican prelate, in an article published in Touchstone entitled The Truth About Men and Church, said this about the results of a Swiss study in 1994. So this is a secular study that was conducted in Switzerland in 1994. It is the religious practice of the father of the family above all that determines the future attendance at or absence from church by the children. If both father and mother attend regularly, 33% of their children will end up as regular churchgoers and 41% will end up attending irregularly. Only a quarter of their children will end up not practicing at all. If a father is a regular and the mother regular, only 3% of their children will become regular themselves, while further, a further 59% will become irregulars and 38% will be lost. If a father is non-practicing and the mother regular, only 2% of children become regular and 37% will attend irregularly over 60% of their children will be completely lost to the church. What happens if the father is regular but the mother irregular or non-practicing? Extraordinarily, the percentage of children becoming regular goes up from 33% to 38%. With, irregular, with an, the irregular mother and 44% with the non-practicing mother as if loyalty to a father's commitment grows in proportion to a mother's laxity, indifference, or hostility. I've seen this. I've been in the ministry over 35 years. I've witnessed this again and again and again. Now you know why I'm into what I'm into. You guys are much more significant than you know. Notice the study doesn't even refer to the Christian faith, evangelical or otherwise. This is merely uh, about religion, generically understood. In effect, this demonstrates the nature of the created order. Our role as fathers is more important to what our children believe and how they behave than many of us even want it to be. 
This isn't the patriarchy as a social construct. It's just patriarchy as a fact of life. Forwards. Now I've arrived at the last point of reference and the end of my talk. This reference point uh, lies ahead in the future. It is in that direction that we're supposed to pass on the patrimony we've received so that it will become the possession of our children who in their turn will be enriched by it and pass it on in faith to their children. That 1994 Swiss study demonstrated that we can't entrust this task to our wives. or even to the church. We are the link in the great patriarchal chain. Don't let yourself be the weak link. Paradoxically then, traditionalists are not only the true conservatives, we're also the true progressives. We're invested in the future through our children. Most progressives are fully invested in the present moment. Here and now, they're trying to maximize their happiness in the moment. That's why they tend to be childless. The numbers are all over the place. I'm not making stuff up. You know this in your own life. Those progressive relatives of yours, do they have a huge brood of children? For our children to pass on the patrimony themselves, they'll need to form households of their own and fill them with children. It's a beautiful and necessary thing, but to a certain cast of mind, it's a retrograde thing. The people who say so are wrong because the Christ-centered household is not the thing of the past. In fact, it isn't even something that can be fully realized in the present. It's actually the future, as in the end of the world. As I conclude, allow me to explain briefly. The world will not end with a bang or even with a whimper. It will end with wedding bells. I've written a book about that called The Household and the War for the Cosmos. In essence, the story of the world is the story of a groom winning and marrying his bride. The groom is Christ. The bride is the church. And when that wedding day arrives, the bride will be glorified and join in the inheritance of the Son of God and together they will rule the cosmos. We will judge angels. The Apostle Paul says that like it's just obvious, like everybody should know this. <laughs> like, it's news to me. <laughs> you know? When it comes to our wives, remember when we love them the way Christ loved the church and our wives respect us, like the church should respect Christ, we give our children and the world at large a glimpse of the end of the world. And this goes a long, long way toward passing on the patrimony we've received. And this is one of the many reasons why we must pass on the patrimony and help our children form households of their own. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the full Trad Dad Conference 2023, now available on Canon+. Plus.